Hello, music enthusiasts. Welcome to Sound Encounters, a music podcast where I explore new and classic releases, different genres, and your favorite artists and bands. I'm your host, CJ Torres. Thank you for joining me today. I am currently recording this episode on possibly the scariest day of the year, November 3rd. It is 3 p.m. on Election Day. Um, and I, I just thought I'd mention that because I, I I felt weird doing this episode during a crucial day, week of the year when we are deciding the fate of the of the next four years of our country. Um, and and so I, I just kind of wanted to do this for myself, being like, oh, I can go back to episode twenty three of Sound Encounters and, and look at what happened before this this day because I, I again i don't i know nothing about the election right now it's 3 p.m i haven't seen any projections i haven't seen any numbers so i know nothing and before i even hopped on the mic i was thinking to myself man i i, I should have told you to go out and vote and talk about how important it was because when this comes out on thursday then it would have already been too late but i'm gonna trust that you and everybody else who listens to this podcast went out and vote and made a smart vote and not, and not waste that opportunity and, and exercise their right to to go out and vote. So we'll see. I know this is kind of a weird intro for a Sound Encounters episode, but, you know, it, it's election day. It's been on my mind the entire day. It was on my mind yesterday. And so I just kind of wanted to address it. And I know probably a lot of you are under a lot of stress or maybe the stress has passed. You know, this will be released on Thursday. I don't know what would happen between those those two days. So again, I just wanted to address it really quickly. Um, but on the off chance that you are still feeling stress, let's just tone it back a bit. Let's forget about the election day woes, the election day blues, the election day anxieties and talk about something that I, I, I strongly, I have strong opinions on. And that is the end of October, the beginning of November, is now suddenly the, the 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 Christmas season. I've had to deal with this kind of mindset for all of my life. Never really got it. I remember asking friends, family members, like, hey, you know, we still have a month to go before December, which is, I think, the start of, well, I think after Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving is the official start of the Christmas season, but December is also Christmas season. But yeah, I would tell them like, hey, let's let's relax. We have another month to go. And I, I kind of say that because I think that Christmas is the start of winter. It's the official start of winter. And that would mean like we would only have like a, one month, maybe a month and a half of fall. And I think fall deserves that as much time as winter and summer, especially since I think winter is the longest, feels like the longest season out of the four. But I tell them like, look, let's let's relax. Let's worry about Christmas after Thanksgiving. I don't want to hear any Christmas music. I don't want to see any Christmas movies playing on on television. Although I don't really watch television, and I don't I don't want to see any decorations yet. Let's let's savor Thanksgiving. Let's savor fall, and let's not get ahead of ourselves. I've had to tell this to a couple people even this year already, and they're so adamant about being like, oh my god, it's Christmas now. I'm so happy that it's Christmas season now and I'm just like, okay, look, I'm going to back off because I've had this conversation, this argument many times before in the past. So I'll I'll let them think what they want to think and I'll just not worry about it until afterwards. But I'm curious to, to hear if, if, if you think like the, the similar way that I think, you know, I pretty much hold back on Christmas, especially since Christmas is pretty stressful, trying to figure out gifts for your loved ones, spending all that money, putting up all the decorations. You know, we never, you never really see any Thanksgiving decorations. And I always joke about like how like, oh, I got to put on my Thanksgiving playlist now because there's no such thing as Thanksgiving music. Although if there is, someone's got to let me know because I would, I would love to hear what Thanksgiving music is. But please tell me your thoughts. Tell me if if you think that it's now Christmas season in November. You know, I, I would love to savor the fall, especially since I, you know, winter's not my favorite season. 
neither is fall, but like I'd like to to savor fall before winter begins. And it it's already snowed here in the Midwest two days in a row. I think last week. And usually fall feels like one of the shortest seasons, if not the shortest season, because it gets so cold here in the Midwest and it snows uh, pretty early on. So all the leaves fall off and, you know, I don't get to enjoy the multicolored trees, the leaves on the ground. But it seems like we're going to have in the next coming days, 70 degree weather, which I feel like I haven't seen during November ever in my life. So that's going to be interesting kind of feel get that spring feeling spring vibe soon so i don't i don't know how that's going to turn out but yes getting back on track please let me know if if uh, your feelings on when the christmas season begins and also if you know any thanksgiving songs please send them my way you can follow me on twitter and instagram at sound encounters send me a tweet hashtag sound encounters and also you could send me a message on anchor.fm there should be a link in the podcast description it'll take you where you need to go and you could send me a voice message and your message might be featured on the next episode of sound encounters i've got a great show for you this week coming up i'm going to be talking about swans and how you can get into swans but first as always we got to talk about this past week in music I think we've had one of the best weeks in music yet. Autechre dropped a surprise release. We've got a new release from One of Tricks Point Never, a new hyperpop project, but I'm going to get into that later because I got to talk about the singles that I heard this week. The first set of singles I heard was from the fucking Smashing Pumpkins. They got released two new tracks, Ramona and Witch, and it's more synth pop, dancey garbage that we've got these past couple of uh, the past couple of singles that they've released. Ramona has another vocal performance from Corgan that I absolutely can't stand, and Witch is this odd Halloween-inspired song. It's it's really bizarre, and I'm just I'm just like, what are you doing, Billy? What is this music that you're releasing? This hour, this upcoming hour-long album that they're going to release will be the death of me. If I am murdered, if I am dead, you'll know that Billy Corgan was, was the one who did this to me. So you can report him to authorities. That's how I feel about these new Smashing Pumpkins singles. In other news, I listened to Miracle of Life by... Bright Eyes and Phoebe Bridgers, another collaboration between these two indie folk giants. I don't know if you've listened to their collaborative album, Better Oblivion Community Center, but that one was that one was nice. It wasn't my favorite thing that they've done. Um, it was a good collaboration, but in terms of is it better than a lot of Bright Eyes albums? Is it better than Phoebe's solo projects? No. But it, it was a fun little collaboration project. And it is nice to hear them, too, on a, a track again. I thought the hook was very catchy, and I was a big fan of that. Oberst and Bridgers are, are great vocalists, and they do a great job here. Bridgers sounding very dreamy as she's in the background until the end where she she's more prominent. Her vocals are more prominent. I love the country twangy guitar. You know, I love I know that they, they kind of have their love for country-ish and folksy music it's a great collaboration and a great song hopefully we'll get more collaborations between oberist and bridgers next i heard four things by freddie gibbs big sean and hip boy you know as soon as i heard his producer tag i was i was, I was focused i was just like yes this is a hip boy produced song and he makes a, a hype trap beat for freddie and sean here it is a short song though it's two minutes long and while i don't like sean as much as i love freddie the two were able to play off each other really well and despite its length despite this somewhat bland beat i thought it was a fun little track nothing to complain about other than i wish it was longer maybe if hip boy had more time with this track he could have developed a, a better sounding beat because as i said it does sound very generic does sound very bland but I can somewhat excuse that because of its short 
length. And yeah, I was surprised that the three of them were able to work so well with each other. And does this mean other collaborations are in the works? Do they have an album coming out soon? We'll see. We'll see. And then next, I heard Look Over Your Shoulder by Buster Rhymes and Kendrick Lamar. And and holy crap, guys, this song is, I feel like, this week's winner. It, it just does so many things right, from the Jackson 5 sample to the beautiful piano loop, the Chris Rock appearance at the end. Busta has a killer verse. You know, he's spinning bars as well as fire. But I think the highlight for me is Kendrick's verse because this verse is several years old since it's from 2012 or 2014. This this very classic Kendrick Lamar rapping subject matter, which is funny to say since if you think about it, Kendrick hasn't been around for that long. But now we classify Good Kid, Mad City, or maybe even To Pimp a Butterfly as classics. So now we kind of have to classify that era of Kendrick as classic Kendrick. But this song is just amazing. Apparently, Busta has a full-length project out now, so I need to check that out as it went under my radar. And if this single is an indicator of how the project is going to sound like, then hopefully hopefully it's just an amazing project. And something that I wish that went under my radar is the new Vin Diesel track, Days Are Gone. You know, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night screaming because I, 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 I just praying that that one Vin Diesel track that I heard was just a reoccurring nightmare and it wasn't real and it was just some sick joke that my brain was playing on me. But no, Vin Diesel is trying to make this EDM career a thing. This new track is pretty much like the last one. Diesel is trying his hardest to mimic that acoustic EDM style that Avicii popularized in 2014 or, or 2013 whenever he blew up. And it's it's so bizarre, but it's so funny. Just listening to Diesel sing in this upper register to accompany the light and vibrant melody and the rhythm. I thought Smashing Pumpkins would have the worst release of the year, but if Diesel keeps this up, then they're going to have some competition. Not at all a great track, but we'll see what happens. If there's if there's more material like this coming out, then I, I don't know what I'll do with myself. And hopefully if Diesel is releasing a project, hopefully that project doesn't release on the same day as Smashing Pumpkins project because um, my little brain might implode. <laughs> And on that note, that, that concludes the singles. As I mentioned earlier, I heard a new Ottecker album. Surprise, surprise. This one is called Plus. It is sort of acts as a companion album to Sign because they both have similar artworks, just different colors. Um, Brown and Booth were talking about finishing two projects. Um, I just didn't think or expect it to drop so soon and so suddenly, especially since Sign had a lot of hype and promotion around it. And I didn't know what to expect, and I was kind of worried that this would be a, a B-Sides collection, stuff that they made but didn't feel confident enough to include on Sign. And for the most part, this is what this album sounds like. On Sign, we have more or less an understanding of what was going on. Brown and Booth were trying to make a project that focused on melodies and lush textures. And so when I heard that this album was coming out, I had just figured that it would be the antithesis of Sign with with a focus on rhythm and percussion. And we do get that on some tracks, but the emphasis of this album is a lot of abstract and experimental tracks, which I imagine is a welcome surprise for those who love the outlandish and dense work of Autechre's recent releases, NTS, LSEC, um, even some of their old stuff like LP5, Confield, etc., etc. And don't get me wrong, I love their experiments too, but not when they are as underwhelming as these tracks. Take, for instance, Equal 4, which is a 14-minute track, and usually I love long tracks that, you know, they take their time to develop especially if if they slowly build up, if they crescendo throughout the track. But this was just a slog to get through because it barely had any progression or or standout moments throughout its 14-minute runtime. No interesting textures, 
the percussion was too muted to enjoy, and, and not enough bite to justify its its length. A lot of these tracks lack the depth of Otecker's wackier works. I think the first two tracks are just noise that is just really uninteresting. I can at least say 7FMIC had an interesting drum beat and, and fun little laser synths that played throughout the track, but it gets bland real quickly. It's apparent they had no clear direction to what this project was going to sound like, which is why it sounds more like a B-Sides collection or an outtakes collection, and that just really sucks. I will say not everything is terrible here. The closing track, TM, One Open, has a propelling rhythm that's an absolute headbanger, and it changes it up enough to keep my interest. The definite highlight off of this album has to be X4, though. The skittering beats and the stumbling percussion kept this track sounding busy and interesting. I think out of all the songs featured here and on Sign, this one might be my favorite. It's a shame this project didn't turn out to be as consistent as Sign, though. I would have loved an equally compelling release in Plus, but unfortunately, that's not what we got. And then moving on, I heard Magic 10 Tricks Point Never by 10 Tricks Point Never. If you are at all interested in experimental electronic music, then I would assume that Daniel Lapatin needs no introduction. He's created some of the most inventive electronic music of the last decade. Hell, he even created Vaporwave, which is such a huge meme, but it, it, it appealed to me when I first discovered it in high school. He's an important artist, one that I admire, but I'll admit, I've never liked his projects on first, second, or even third a lesson. One of Trick's albums usually take their time with me. I gotta sit with them multiple times before I am able to digest it and say whether or not I liked or disliked it. That's what happened with Replica for me. That's what happened with R Plus 7 and Garden of the Lead and all of his other projects. So I didn't think I'd have a very concise opinion of this new project. But much like this album, my feelings of it came as a surprise. So what did I think of Magic 10 Tricks Point Never? You know, I, I really hate to bring up another record from this week to compare it to, but after hearing Plus and Magic 10 Tricks Point Never back to back, I feel like it's an appropriate comparison because Plus's lack of direction, it, it, it's really clear, mainly because the duo throws together a bunch of songs with different textures, moods, and styles without much rhyme or reason, and then just calls it an album. But what makes Magic OPN stand out is because Lapatin uses this project to examine his career by reintroducing the many styles he's done over the years. We have the minimal synth work of riffs, the creative sampling of Replica, R Plus 7's fluidity, and the refined songwriting and progressive pop of Age Of, all in this project. The project is divided between four distinct sections, all separated by these crosstalk interludes, and it, it kind of sounds like a radio station, like you're flipping through a radio station. And it was a surprise to learn that he kind of based this album around a radio station that he listened to called Magic 106.7, hence the name of, of the album. So I thought that was a really cool thing to add to this record. Certainly not creative, as other artists have done this before, kind of building an album around a radio station narrative. I don't want to say gimmick, but eh, sometimes it can be gimmicky. But it, it certainly doesn't feel that way on this project. The first section consists of Auto and Allo and Long Road Home, and these are neoclassical pieces that contain Lapatin's vocals, something that sounds like harpsichord, string sections. It all sounds very gorgeous. We get a mix of sample-based songs and R&B electronic fusion in these second and third parts. No Nightmares was a highlight for me, as that R&B and synthwave fusion made for an interesting point in the album. Plus, The weekend sounds good with the mellow and moody synths back in his vocals. The vocal loops of Imago that transitions into this dreamy ambient and radio static section reminded me of Replica, my favorite OPN project. I Don't Love Me Anymore is a fantastic 
eerie dance song with more of Flopitin's vocals and unsettling synth chords accompanying him. The last section might be the weakest though, as it reminds me a lot of the experimentation and the fluidity of R plus seven, while also incorporating some synth pop into the mix. Although wave idea was a highlight for me, those haunting flute notes being repeated with what sounds like nature recordings both put me at ease while also adding some needed tension drama. He's able to mix together all these eras so seamlessly and it, and it creates a, an amazing project that is a culmination of what he's been working on this past decade as well as incorporating some new ideas. This is a project that I instantly loved which again was a surprise given how I'm really not I really don't make up my mind on a One of Tricks Point Never album on a third listen. It was my third listen that where I just decided like, okay, yeah, this is a fantastic record. But I don't know. I, I maybe I'm getting used to Lobbiton's music. Maybe it's the adding of old ideas altogether was what made it easier to digest. But this has to be one of my favorite projects of this year. And finally, I heard Food House by Food House, aka Goopy and Fraxium. So I love hyperpop. I think hyperpop is a very innovative take on pop music. Um, I really love Sophie's work. I love 100 Gex. I'm loving Charlie XEX's new work. And if, if you consider Black Dresses hyperpop, then, you know, I, I, I consider them hyperpop, but I loved Black Dresses and especially that new project that they released earlier this year. So I was shocked to hear that a new Hyperpop album came out um, with kind of flying under my radar. Um, I've never heard of Goopy and Fraxium before. Actually, that's not true. I, I, I've i watched Lava Palooza and I and I knew of them, at least Goopy, um, when I watched Lava Palooza, but I haven't heard anything outside of that, I should say. So I was curious to hear what this new project had to offer. Food House is a very funny name um it had a very interesting cover because it just it, it, it screams like 90s graphic design to me with this multicolored text and like with a cloudy-ish blue sky background um but i didn't like what i heard necessarily because when i hear food house all that was going through my mind was how they were trying their hardest to mimic a hundred gex and I understand, you know, 100 Gex is probably the biggest name in hyperpop right now. They have a lot of in inventive work, a lot of silly shit as well. So when I heard lyrics that refer to internet culture, like Alvin, like an Alvin and the Chipmunks meme, a sample of Crazy Frog and, and Bandcamp, I just thought to 100 Gex because their ironic lyrics just pop out to me. And it's I guess now it's typical for hyperpop because artists like 100 Gex kind of made that the norm for the genre. And maybe because I'm used to the hyperpop sound, or because I've heard better production from the likes of Sophie or Dylan Brady, but a lot of these beats, the synths, and the overall sound design on this record sounds generic and vapid. You know, I like it when producers push the envelope of what we consider to be pop music. But it seems like Goopy and, and Frax are happy using standard EDM beats that I find boring. One of the singles, Moss Thoster, had a bland, hardcore EDM beat that just took me out of the song. If that wasn't enough, the breakdown in the outro was just so derivative of club music. It could be considered a homage. A lot of this record can actually be... But with how little they spice it up, it just sounds like lazy recycling or they've wanted to make their own brand of EDM and, and they were just too late to make that. Um, there is an amazing rave breakdown on 8 now, I, I will say. So go check out that song because I fairly enjoyed that. Because I fairly enjoyed that. Um, then there are some songs where Frax raps behind super distorted trap beats these might actually be the worst tracks on the album since Frax decides that they want to mimic clout rappers who just yell at the mic. Although the last verse on Pharmacy has a, a sweet flow, which I could have heard more of, but then the song just ends because it was a minute and a half long. I think probably the best track on the album follows Pharmacy, 
and it's appropriately called metal as the duo samples a metal guitar riff as Frax screams the lyrics. This is probably the most surprising moment on the album and something that made me go, oh, okay, so this is Food House, not the other stuff that they were trying to mimic, not the other stuff that I found boring or bland or derivative and, and, and not made me think of their contemporaries. And Foresight was actually a great closer as ethereal, disordered synths accompany some of the best lyrics on the project and the synths and vocals crescendo creating a transcendental-like quality to the track. And it, it makes me want more of that. It, it, it left me feeling like, oh, I should have heard more of this instead of the other crap on the album. Um, it's not the best start, but I can definitely see potential in Foodhouse's work. We need more hyperpop. I, I would love more hyperpop, but um, not like this. And certainly uh, a, a, bit, a, a bit more refined and unique. And with that, that concludes this past week in music. We're going to take a little break, but when we come back, I'm going to talk about swans. Stay tuned, everybody. Hello, and welcome back to Sound Encounters. Before the break, I had promised that I was going to talk about Swans. Swans is a very important band to me because it just showed me the extent of rock music and, and how, how, how experimentation can enrich rock music and folk music and punk music. It just, they're a band that opened my eyes. And I feel like I say that about, maybe I just said that about Radiohead. I'm not sure if I said that about Animal Collective or, or Sweet Trip since the last two guides, or those are the only three bands that I did guides for. And I wanted to do another artist guide. And what better one to do than one of my favorite rock bands of all time, Swans. So some history and background for Swans. They are the brainchild of singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, painter, and poet Michael Jira. The band was formed in 1982 by Jira and was one of the few acts to emerge from the New York underground no-wave scene. Jira had a difficult childhood as his parents weren't around as much, leaving him to take care of his younger brother. His mother was an alcoholic. He committed petty crimes. He was arrested, almost incarcerated, sold hashish in Jerusalem, and turned 16 in jail in a foreign country. Yeah, that's a lot for a young man to deal with. So uh, to me, it makes sense that a lot of the music that he made with Swans was very pessimistic, brutal, and difficult to digest, as a lot of no-wave music is. But the important thing to note about Swans is that they've been active for years, for decades, which means that their sound has changed dramatically and evolved over time. When, when talking about what kind of music this band makes, you can generally talk about three distinct phases in their discography. There's the early no-wave industrial sound, there's the gothic post-punk sound of the middle era, and modern-day Swans makes grand orchestral post-rock music. And since Swans has been making music since the 80s, they've, they've made many albums and, and projects, and it's going to take me a while to cover everything, so I'm dividing this guide into two parts. First part this week, second part next week. I won't talk about everything also, as Jira has some side projects, some solo material that I won't get into because I just want to talk about Swans, and if I talked about the side projects, if I talked about the solo material, then we might have four weeks talking about just this specific band and Michael Jira. So let's get into it. Like I said, Swans formed in 1982 after Jira's post-punk band Circus Mort was disbanded. He fronted that band and they only released an EP, about four songs to be exact, played some live events. And as soon as that was disbanded, Jira was already thinking of another project. And thus came Swans. In 1982, they released their debut EP, self-titled EP, Swans. Their approach to this EP, or Jira's approach to this EP, I should say, pretty much followed the Circus Mort post-punk sound. What stands out is the rhythmic bass riffs 
atonal guitars, Jira's terrifyingly deadpan vocal delivery, and surprisingly blaring discordant saxophone playing from Daniel Galiduini. So we see a mix of post-punk and no-wave, especially uh, something like James Chance and the Contortions, as James Chance was known for his discordant saxophone playing during that project. Since there's only four tracks on the CP, I'm not going to talk about every track on the CP. I just wanted to mention it because it's it was their first EP. It was the first music that they released under the Swans name. And so I, it was important to talk about. But what I do want to talk about is the highlight of this EP for me, a song that I could pick out as an essential listen from this EP. Listen to the last song, Sensitive Skin. That is a amazing track. I love that slow creeping fade in at the beginning that introduces this very groovy rhythm section while the guitars are rampant and distorted. The sax also creeps up on this track which is it's very eerie and horrifying especially when you hear what Jira is saying. The hook alternates between two lines getting taken to the basement getting fucked to ease some tension and what we are left with is, is this very savage and brutal subject matter. This is quite a debut EP. After listening to this, you know exactly who Swans are and what they are all about, but I think they make an even better first impression with their debut album, Filth, which was released in 1983. I actually talked about this album last week for my No Wave Guide. If you want to listen to that breakdown, you can check out that episode, but as a quick recap, since it's their first record and it's one of my favorite songs record and I got to talk about it. Jira was inspired by the No Wave movement. As a result, the music on this album is punishing and grueling. Jira screams, shouts, and howls his way through most of these songs. Drum rhythms are pummeling and guitars are repetitive and oppressive. Lyrics refer to violence, sex, power, and rage to match the viciousness of the music. In a way, a lot of the music and lyrics says a lot about where Jiro was at the time in his life. Jiro was living in New York City's Lower East Side at the time, which is where No Wave was born. Crime is at an all-time high. He often heard gunfire at night. His neighborhood was surrounded by derelict buildings. And due to waste disposal taking a hit during this time, garbage and filth were in the streets. His bleak environment and the fact that he was struggling with money provided for the backbone of the lyrics and music for this project. The opening track, Stay Here, is an immediate eye-opener to the dismal and primal sound of this record as Jira growls, be hard, be strong, flex your muscles, resist temptation. Alongside abrasive drums and the caustic wall of noise the, the guitars create. Other tracks like Power for Power or Right Wrong perfectly portray the brutality that was early Swans, as Power for Power's lyrics talk about obtaining control by any means necessary with this savage drum beat. You can barely call it a rhythm since it sounds like the drummers are just beating the hell out of their drum kits. And then there's Right Wrong, another song where it sounds like the drummers are abusing their poor kits. However, they managed to fit in a couple of killer fills that are probably my favorite parts of this track. But we also get Jira's repetitive lyrics and moaning and agonizing guitar screeches to make this track even more claustrophobic and destructive. This truly is a sickening listen, one that I absolutely love for its unapologetic ruthlessness. I would describe listening to this record as cathartic, as so much aggression is just laid out in the open, and to hear something like this, when a lot of music sounds muted or restrained, is just really fascinating. Well, it seems like Jiro wanted to take this sound a step further as their next release, Cop, 1984 went for a nastier approach. This record pretty much has the sound and style of filth, but it's slowed down with slower tempos, obviously. More tape looping, which I forgot to mention, filth utilized a lot of tape looping, and, and, and now Cop is just intensifying that. Jira's vocal delivery also goes through a change. He isn't yelling as much, and he's also slowed down and most of the time it seems like he's expressionless. This is evident on the opening track, Half-Life. Everything is slower. The guitars remind me of a, of a sludge metal song. Though this album predates sludge metal, it could have possibly inspired the genre as well, which I think is very interesting. Jiro's vocals has now taken this chanting-like quality to them as he talks about conformity and avoiding mistakes. 
there's a misanthropic angle to this song as he thinks conformity makes you think and act like a slave and, and critiquing the fact that people are so anxious to make a mistake and people need to be perfect workers for the benefit of, of society or, or a company or whatever. He even says, don't be useless. And he takes this concept a step further on the following track, Job, as he criticizes the perpetual cycle of capitalism and how crushing that can be to a person. He repeats, body to body to body to body. And I interpret this as his way of saying the system doesn't view workers as people, only as a commodity. He's fleshing out his ideas that, that he presented on Filth as there were lyrics that were anti-authoritarian and, and talked about power and the dynamics of power. I was shocked listening to this and realizing how topical this record is. Jury even talks about police brutality on the title track. He really isn't holding anything back on this song. These lyrics are disgusting and barbaric, much like the act of a cop abusing their power. I mean, just listen to these lyrics. Nobody hurts them like a cop with a club. Nothing beats them like a cop with a club. Nobody rapes them like a cop with a club. I love this socio-political stance that Jura took even back in the 80s. You know, his lyrics might be brutally honest, but at least he can get his message across. Unfortunately, this still applies to today. Jura's clear fascination with power dynamics and dominant and submissive relationship are realized on your property. An important song in the Swans' discography, as they would return to it multiple times in their discography and at live shows. This version, however, is raw and primal. Jira actually yells out the lyrics on this song, and the lyrics are talking about authority and being owned. Jira wanted to explore the dirt and the grime of the foundation that was filth and got something that was possibly more disgusting and disturbing. And for that reason, it's probably why I had a difficult time with this one. But if you're feeling the same way that I was feeling about this project, keep giving it a chance because I would say it's definitely a grower. Later that same year, they followed up Cop with the Young God EP. The four tracks on here sound similar to what we heard on Cop, and it makes sense considering it was recorded during the Cop sessions. If you liked that album, you'll have no problem with this EP. However, I do want to highlight one track, and that is the track called Raping a Slave. Yeah, really jarring title, um, a, a fucking wild roller coaster if you ask me, but in my opinion, I think this was the intention. I think Jura wanted attention on this tr specific track because my interpretation after listening to the lyrics is that it's a song that's an extension of the themes that we heard on Cop. The slave is the worker and the raping is what corporations and companies, etc., do to the worker very interesting i you know when i first heard swans i didn't really get the social the social political lyrics that i hear on their early work but after spending some time with the, the this sort of early no wave era and digging deeper into the lyrics i'm, I'm having a a newfound appreciation for their early work then they followed up this ep with another ep called time is money bastard released in 1986 this is a somewhat another turning point in their sound as they started focusing on a more industrial sound as evident from the title track. A sample of a nail gun kicks off this track and along with some drums, these act as our rhythm. We also hear this atonal guitar scraping in the background. Jira switches between monotone singing and shouting. Surprisingly, this is a very danceable track despite its very bleak subject matter. Then the B-side, Sealed and Skin, is another breakthrough for the band as it's very down-tempo and slow in a moody way, not in a menacing, terrifying way. And this is the first Swans track where they utilize a piano, although it does sound pretty haunting. I should also mention that this is the first time in the Swans discography that features Jarbo, a, a frequent collaborator for Swans within their, their early and, and middle period. Jarbo was a fan of the band, before she was a member, she heard a song from Filth on the radio and was so enthralled with them ever since. She sent in letters and demo tapes until Jira let her into the band, which is kind of a, a funny origin story for being in a band. 
But with Jarbo signing on and this new industrial sound, it was a sign of things to come as their next release, Greed, released in 1986, was a full-fledged exploration into industrial and the gothic with pianos, drum machines, and apathetic vocal delivery from Jira. Before I move on, I should mention that this album, the Time Is Money EP, and the following album and EP were all released in the same year, 1986. A lot of Swans material that year. The track that stands out to me on Greed is Money Is Flesh, as the guitars are metallic and feel like they are being struck instead of played. Then there's the pounding drum beat, which is head throbbing and a trepid synthesizer loop that plays occasionally throughout the song. It seems that Jira has now opted for more ritual-like lyrics, as he'll take a line, repeat it a couple of times, then move on to the next line, repeat it, and so on. We also hear more forceful drum pounding and lethargic delivery from Jira throughout the album. Repetitiveness is reminiscent of an assembly line worker, and by that I mean working with machinery. It's repetitive, it's monotonous, and Jira's apathy on this record is starting to make a little more sense when you kind of go along with my analogy. Tracks like Nobody and Stupid Child have lyrics that describe worthlessness and indignity. From the band's music so far, this shouldn't be a surprise, but now that we can hear Jira a, a bit better since he isn't screaming his lungs out, it, it hits harder. It's way more depressing listening to lyrics like this. And since I brought up Nobody, I like to talk about an aspect of this record that will play into the sound of their following records. Jarbo's backing vocals on Nobody gives this song a gothic quality to it. And that goes for Fool as well, the opening track, as the dour and depressing piano riff loops and the narcotic guitar chords feel very gothic. It, it, it gives us this gothic atmosphere that is new for the band. And it is different territory, but one that is welcome, especially if you don't really appreciate the abrasiveness of the the previous two full-length releases, the, the abrasiveness of those albums. A month later, the band released their fourth LP, Holy Money, a companion album to Greed, as they kind of had the same album art. The album art from this 1986 year all featured a dollar sign on them. So for Holy Money, we just get another variation of the dollar sign artwork. And alternate versions of Fool and Money is Flesh appear on this album. Fool version 2 now has soaring distorted guitars and an incessant banging accompanying the doom and gloom of Jira and the piano. Money is Flesh version 2 is mostly the same. I barely noticed the difference when I first heard the song because it's, it's very subtle. The mixing is better, the drums are more prominent, and it has a slightly faster tempo. But other than that, it's pretty much the same song. Delving into the new tracks on this album, it's no surprise that they are the same mix of industrial goth and no wave and its solemn rituals as it's in a companion album to Greed. The immediate highlight on this album is a screw holy money as it's an incredible industrial dance song created by gritty production and a looping drumbeat. Jira's sinister whisper heightened the lyrics about prostitution and sex. Then we get another track like A Hanging, which is another highlight for me. The violent pounding of the drum, along with the atonal guitar and the drone, makes this a pretty standard no-wave track, but with the added addition of Jarbo's chilling background vocals, it mutates into this horrific nightmare, and honestly, it's what captivated me on first listen. Jarbo is starting to take center stage as the following track, You Need Me, features her on lead vocals. It's a beautiful and short ballad with a couple of piano notes accompanying her vocals. And yes, that's I said ballad. They're, they're really starting to, to experiment with their songwriting abilities and, and how to write songs if they are writing ballads now. It shows the expansion and diversity of their music now as they are, they, they're not afraid to branch out. Another favorite is the closing track, Coward, as it's another track that shows the band's short bursts of aggressive guitar and drum playing, and the vocals contrast each other as we have Jiro's quiet, monotonous delivery as the primary focus and his distant yelling in the background. 
Then we have a Screw EP released two months after Holy Money. On this EP, there's two different versions of a Screw with added horns and distorted vocals or no vocals at all. However, the interesting track here is Blackmail, another track featuring Jarbo as the lead vocalist. You know, it really shows that she's a gorgeous singer as she is performing alongside somber pianos. And I really think it's it's showing the strengths of the band as they are able to take a step back and reserve themselves and, and showcase the beauty of the music that they can make. Then in 1987, they released Children of God, another evolution in their sound as they started making post-punk and neo-folk music. We still have that gothic aspect of the last couple of releases, but it's more fleshed out on this record and not overshadowed by no-wave industrial music. This also marks the end of Swans' no-wave period, although this is kind of a transitional period between these two phases in their career. As Children of God's tracklist is structured in a way where it can support both abrasive noise rock and softer folk ballads. Opening track New Mind begins with heavy guitar chords and a pulverizing drumbeat. Jira alternates between this talk singing that keeps the chanting of the previous projects and growling. It's a track that has hints of noise and industrial, but also is accessible enough for post-punk fans to enjoy. The following track, In My Garden, tones it down, however, as tender acoustic guitar chords and piano keys start playing. There's even a subtle flute playing in the background. Jarbo's singing is so eloquent and beautiful. Honestly, this sounds like a lullaby. The lyrics also refer to a garden where things grow and people never die. The lyrics kind of allude to the album's concept, which I'll get to in a bit. But the first time I heard this song, I was thinking to myself, whoa, where did this come from? And and, and I was also thinking I, I had no idea that Swans had it in them to make songs like this. Honestly, this is all Jarbo's doing, and I'm not complaining because this stuff is gorgeous. So like I said, Children of God is a concept album. There's lyrics about religion and faith all over this record. It seems like Jira was fascinated with how religion made people think and act, so he wanted to, to write songs about that. And given what we know about what Jira writes about, it, it makes total sense. And it sounds like he's writing from an outsider's point of view as he's like observing people of faith and how their God factors into their, their daily lives and whatnot. Take the lyrics of Sex God's Sex, for example because I think it's from the perspective of a follower. I just want to read out a couple of lyrics to you from this track. I am naked and I am impure. I am sexless. I am foul. I am ignorant. I am naked. Forgive me, Lord. So right off the bat, we are already seeing the dominant and submissive relationship, the dominant being God and submissive being the follower. And Jira is highlighting the, the primal and disgusting features of, of human beings just from that quote alone. You know, they need a God to save them from their sinful selves. And it's almost like it's like a criticism of religion because it seems like if you ask for forgiveness, then you are automatically excused from some vile shit that you might have done in the past. Like a drug, Shalala examines sinning. You know, you ask for forgiveness. It is out of your mind. It is out of sight. And it should be noted that these songs, both Like a Drug, Shalala, and Sex God Sex, are accompanied by some of the most vicious guitar playing on the record. Children of God is riddled with darkness and pessimism, but also it has some of Swans' most transcendental music yet. The combination of noise and tender folk, distorted guitars and flutes, shouting and gentle singing makes this a definite highlight in the Swans' discography. One of their masterpieces. So before I continue, I just want to note that Jira and Jarbo took a little vacation from Swans and created a side project called World of Skin, which focused primarily on the neo folk. Again, don't want to—I I don't want to get into the side projects, but I mentioned World of Skin and the neo folk genre because it is important to understand how Jira focuses on these next couple of Swans projects after Children of God. And World of Skin, Jira and Jarbo wanted to experiment with their sound once again. They were getting more attention from the mainstream and critics, and so they dipped their toe into the mainstream with a little cover of a Joy Division song called Level Terrace Apart. Their version is acoustic 
and airy as they opt for the gothic neo-folk sound. Jera's monotone vocals and Jarbo's distant backing vocals brings out the apathy in Curtis's lyrics. And it's not a bad cover, but holy shit, is it strange to hear Jira like this. There's a music video on YouTube if you want to check it out. It's it's kind of, it's it's so late 80s actually. It's just so funny. But this was important to mention because they did go to more attention and popularity after this cover. Jira discovered the value of the mainstream and critical attention, so they signed to a major record label, Uni, Uni Records to be exact, which is now defunct. And they planned to release accessible music, which led to their sixth full-length album, The Burning World, released in 1989, all because of that Joy Division cover. This project is characterized by stripped-back and mellow neo-folk and gothic country ballads. Vocals, guitars, drums, keyboards, bass, and strings all sound very clean. Jira and Jarbo's vocals are soothing and monotonous, and they don't make your ears bleed or hurt. We have jangly folk guitars all over the album, most notably on Saved, which is a highlight off of this record. I think the first two tracks, The River That Runs With Love and Let It Come Down, are fairly great gothic country songs with gorgeous string sections. And you can't really talk about this record without mentioning the closing track, Goddamn the Sun. Just a fantastic track with depressing lyrics about a man losing his lover and his childhood best friend. The slow buildup of guitars and strings is just beautiful. There's a lot to like about this album, but I completely understand those who classify this as the worst Swans album. Actually, it's a very popular opinion that this is the worst Swans album. In fact, it might be my least favorite as well, or at least one of my least favorite albums in their discography. And that's because it's it's lacking the creativity and the bite that previous Swans releases and following Swan releases have. Barely anything stands out other than the fact that this is the most accessible Swans project to date. Hell, even Jira has issues with this record, as he stated in the past that he abhors it. It didn't sell well either, so he marked it down as a failure, dropped the record label, and moved on. But I, I will say that I was surprised by how much I liked some of these songs. If you're a Swans fan, or if you're beginning to love uh, Swans' music, and you are just intimidated by The Burning World, or you just even ignore it because, you know, it, it, it a lot of people dislike it, then I, I would say give it a shot because I definitely found some things that I love about this record that I would not have discovered, discovered otherwise if I uh, hadn't given a listen. From there, they released White Light from the Month of Infinity, released in 1991. They're still writing goth rock and neo-folk songs. However, the arrangements are grander and more orchestral. They recruited several musicians from, from guitarists, drummers, and violin players from this record. Jura and Jarbo switch it up lyric-wise as well, as they go from a pessimistic viewpoint to optimistic. So many metaphors about love and, and life on this record, and it's just so bizarre. It's like they're playing music to their poetry. One track that I absolutely love to to hear whenever I play this record is Love Will Save You. It's a slow buildup of hauntingly beautiful guitar chords, an angelic choir and, and keyboards, and, and it all comes together in this transcendental climax. I get goosebumps every time I listen to this song. This is actually one of the, the, the songs that on here that I can't say is sweet. Well, it is, but the way Jura describes how love can save people from dark intentions or horrific events is really sweet, but every refrain he reiterates that love can save him, which is kind of, it kind of sucks because I think Jarbo and Jira were dating around this time. It's a beautifully tragic song, and I think it, it's, it's a perfect showcase of progression in the band. Power and Sacrifice is another highlight. Jira is, is still writing the same songs about power, but instead of fixating on the inhumane nature of wanting and possessing power, he turns his focus on what is sacrificed when power becomes a goal. In verse 1, he says, I want power because it feels good. I want power. I'll wash America with blood. I want power, a clear blue light in the sky. I feel power running through my veins and out of my eyes and into empty, godforsaken minds without reality. This is backed by galloping drums, soaring guitars, and hypnotizing background vocals. 
You Know Nothing is actually a pensive and touching song, one which finds Jira talking about hope and love, all while dreamy guitar chords reverberate and Jarbo's ethereal vocals play in the background. I never thought I would use those words to describe Swans' music. Hearing a man who wrote songs like Power for Power and Cop say, I was told that your eyes would shine a light up into space, show some real character progression. People like to shit on Burning World, but I don't think Jiro would have gotten to this point and refined his songwriting abilities without going through that little bump in the road that was Burning World. A year later, the group followed up White Light with Love of Life, released in 1992. Much like how Holy Money was a companion to Greed, Love of Life sort of acts as White Light's sequel. They're the same cover art style. There's rabbits on them. The White Light from the Mouth of Infinity had a a singular rabbit um, that was kind of creepy. I've heard people describe it as creepy. I've never really thought it was creepy, but I can see why people thought it was creepy. But Love of Life takes that cover art to the max as there's two rabbits now with their heads on fire. So it's a bit more apocalyptic and and more horrific. And I think that's a perfect thing to convey on the album art as that pretty much describes the music. Because while we have similar gothic neo-folk sound to it, the music has become more aggressive and sinister and nihilistic. This is the first time the band is using sampling and field recordings. Part two is this intimidating drone that lasts for 30 seconds, but it just hits you in the face after the melodic golden boy swallowed by the sea. I couldn't help but feel the the, the dread when I heard this little interlude. It was an interesting little vignette. And then the following track, part three, is taken from a recording of a man talking about his journey in the woods. This is backed by guitars, and it adds a whole other atmosphere to Swans' music. I think the best example of this field recording sampling is on Her, which uses a recording of Jarbo as a young girl for the outro. Little stuff like this makes this release really stand out, and it laid down some foundation for what was to come as, as they would take this field recording sampling to the next level on upcoming releases. My favorite track has to be Amnesia by far, as Jira sounds his most menacing. The propelling drum rhythm and the hypnotic chant of the chorus easily makes this the darkest moment of the album. This is a song that Jira would return to later down the line, and and while that version is, is slower and lighter, I love the savagery of this version. It sounds like the no wave Jira wants to burst through and take control of this track and 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 get rid of the goth rock and, and neo-folk inspirations of this track. So, Swans has 15 full-length LPs, and I'm only at number 8, so I think this is a great place to stop. Next week, I will finish off the middle-era Swans, as well as talk about the modern-day incarnation of Swans. But if if, if you are listening to, to me talk about this band and you're intrigued and you went out and, and listened to a couple of their tracks, a couple of their projects so far, please let me know on Twitter, on Instagram, on anchor.fm. Send me a voice message, link in the podcast description. Let me know because that would be uh, it's just so great because this band is just so amazing and they have so many uh, underappreciated gems in their discography that you know, I didn't really know about until I listened to their entire body of work. And and please let me know, what's your favorite Swans record so far? Do you have a favorite Swans record? Do you, are, are you not liking the sound of Swans? I, I'm curious. I would love to know. So please, you can send me a message on Twitter, Instagram, at Sound Encounters, or send me an anchor voice message link in the podcast description. I'd love to continue this Swans conversation. Well, that does it for this week of Sound Encounters. Of course, next week I will conclude my guide to Swans. And again, if you have any thoughts and opinions on Swans so far, please let me know by sending me an anchor voice message. Um, if And as always, if you liked this podcast and you think your music enthusiast friends would also love this podcast, share, the, share it with them. It would be nice to continue to grow the sound encounters family yes 
I think we're, I think, I think we're at that point now. We can call ourselves a family now. And if you loved this episode, if you loved other Sound Encounters episodes, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. I would appreciate it. And your pod, your review, excuse me, could be featured on the next episode of Sound Encounters. Follow the Sound Encounters Twitter and Instagram at Sound Encounters. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and it could be featured on the next episode of Sound Encounters. Do you have a question or suggestion for me? Then visit the Twitter or Anchor page and submit your question. That too could be featured on the next episode of Sound Encounters. Thank you to Soundstripe for their wonderful selection of music, which I use today. And thank you for tuning in and listening and supporting my little show here. I'm Caesar. this has been Sound Encounters, and I'll see you next week.